chapter 11 this morning. There was once a grandmother who was feeling down and blue and just sort of sad, and her daughter wanted to cheer her up. So her daughter said to their four-year-old son, let's go over to grandma's and cheer her up. And on the ride, ride over, they were talking about how to encourage people, and the mother was, was sort of exhorting the four-year-old to say some encouraging things to the grandmother once they got there. So they get there, and the four-year-old climbs up on his grandma's lap, and his grandma reads him a few stories. She puts the books down, and the four-year-old looks up at his grandma and says, Grandma, I love you. And the grandma, feeling just sort of sorry for herself and down in the dump, she said, How could you love someone so old and fat and ugly? To which the little boy, remembering his mother's words, said, Grandma, you're not old, fat, and ugly. You're old, fat, and pretty. (laughs) Somehow those words of encouragement probably just didn't serve the purpose, did they? Well, we turn in God's Word today to a story of an encourager, a story of encouragement. We turn to the story of Barnabas. You remember from last time what has happened. Peter's gone to Caesarea. Um, Cornelius' house, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the Gentiles. Peter came back to Jerusalem and he explained what has happened, although word of all that beat him back to Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem Christians at first aren't real happy about this until Peter explains the vision, what God taught him, how the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then they're glad that God has brought the Gentiles into the family of God without making them first jump through extra hoops and uh, extra obstacles between them and salvation. He did, God didn't make the Gentiles first become a Jew, first change something about themselves before God would then accept them. So we move today from uh, that to the next story. We'll begin on verse 19, and we'll kind of go through, I'll read down through verse 26 or so, although we won't get that far today. Beginning in verse 19, I think this is page 914 if you're using a few Bible. Beginning in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So what's the deal with them? What? Did they not get it? Did, did they not get the whole fact that the Gentiles are now accepted into the kingdom? Well, let's not forget, it says here that they were scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. Now the persecution of Stephen happened several chapters ago, back in chapter 8 several years prior to this. And so this is not the age of internet news and cable news and all this. Perhaps they haven't heard what has happened in Caesarea. Perhaps they haven't heard the teaching that God has given to the church in Jerusalem. They weren't there. Or maybe they have heard and they need to learn the lesson that Peter learned as well as the, the, church, uh, the Christians in Jerusalem had to learn as well. We don't know. But they were preaching only to the Jews. But then verse 20 But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So the Hellenists, we've talked about them before. There are Hellenist Jews who are Jews living outside of Palestine. They spoke Greek. I don't think that's what Luke is talking about here because he, in verse 19 and verse 20, he sets them up as as opposites. In verse 19, they weren't speaking to the Jews, but verse 20, they were speaking... These other guys were speaking to the Hellenists. So I I don't think he means Greek-speaking Jews. I think he just means Greek-speaking people. There were these people, verse 20. Luke leaves them unnamed. 
We'll never know who they were until we meet them, I guess. He leaves them unnamed, but they are going, preaching Jesus Christ to the Greek-speaking people. Now, they're from Cyprus and Cyrene, which means they speak Greek as well. Greek is their native language. So they're speaking the gospel of Jesus to those who are like them, who also speak Greek. And they're going to this place called Antioch. Now, we all know Antioch, don't we? We're familiar with the, with the place of Antioch. I don't think there's a county in the United States that doesn't have an Antioch Baptist church in it. So we're familiar with Antioch in the Scriptures. But what was this place, Antioch? Well, Antioch was no small place. It was a very large city. Historians estimate somewhere between half a million and 800,000 people were living there at the time making it the third largest city in the ancient world, behind only Rome and Alexandria, Egypt. So it was an enormously large city, very wealthy. Antioch was the first city in the world to begin lighting their streets at night, and they were doing that at this time. So when these people go to Antioch to preach the gospel, they're going to a city that's the only city in the world that lights their streets at night, with torches, obviously. The... uh, The Antioch, the city of Antioch was a very wealthy place. The main streets were lined with marble colonnades on both sides. The the main streets of town were paved, not with cobblestones, but with marble. It was a very wealthy place, a very diverse place. And as you might imagine, it was a very pagan place, a very immoral place. The, uh, The largest temple there was the temple to the Greek goddess Daphne. So a lot of worship took place to Daphne and to the Greek god Apollos. They were very pagan people. They were very immoral people. Historians tell us today that their immorality was only surpassed by Corinth. So Antioch and Corinth were two of the most immoral, wicked places of the ancient world. And it's to Antioch that these Christians go to preach the gospel. And verse 21 tells us that revival breaks out there. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So because the hand of the Lord is with them, their words are effective, people's hearts are changed, and they begin turning to the Lord. And kind kind of like what happened in Samaria, Jerusalem hears about this. They hear about the revival that broke out in Antioch. And they say, let's check this out. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So go up to Antioch, Barnabas, and find out about this revival that's taking place there. Reminds us again of chapter 8, and I'm sorry, chapter 10, when they sent Peter and John to Samaria to check out the revival that was going on up there. Only this time they they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check this out. So verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We're familiar with the way that that paragraph ends there. That's a rather intriguing sentence, that that's the first place, uh, supposedly, that, that Christians were called Christians. So that sort of intrigues us, and we see Saul come back into the picture here. But we're really, today we're going to focus not on verses 25 through 28, but we're going to really focus on what 
happens before this because Luke spends two or three sentences here focusing on Barnabas. Now, what do we know about Barnabas? We've been introduced to Barnabas back in chapter 4. You remember chapter 4, we're told, Luke tells us that Barnabas sells all of his property back home in Cyprus and gives all the money to the church. And then that prompts two other guys, two two other people, Ananias and Sapphira, they see the, the recognition that Barnabas gets from doing that, so they concoct their little scheme. We remember that in chapter 5. But then again, we see Barnabas in chapter 9. Chapter 9, Saul has been converted to faith in Christ. He spent two years preaching in Damascus, and then he comes to Jerusalem, and the apostles won't meet him. They won't see him because they're afraid of him. And it's Barnabas who goes to the apostles and says, Listen, guys... He met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He's been converted. He's been preaching for two years in Damascus, Jesus Christ. Come on. You need to meet with this guy. So Barnabas is the one who brings Saul to the apostles. So we know that about Barnabas. What else do we know? We also know that Barnabas isn't his name. Back in chapter 4, verse 26, Luke told us that his name's really Joseph, but Barnabas is his alias his handle. Because all the the Christians who know him, they say, you know, Joseph, you're not a Joseph. You're a Barnabas. You're an encourager, son of encouragement. That's what his name means. He's an encourager because he encourages those around him. And so what God is bringing to us today is a lesson, a teaching on encouragement. We know, don't we, that the Bible tells us that we are to be people who are encouragers. We are to encourage those around us, especially the brothers and sisters in Christ. We are not to discourage, but we are to encourage. We know the Bible tells us this in many places. For example, Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that by hearing it they may receive grace. We know all that. There's that, uh, here it is right here up on the screen. So we know that in many other places that the Bible teaches us that we are to be people of encouragement. We are to give encouragement to others. Now, we also know that usually, not always, but usually when the Bible teaches us a central doctrine or a main teaching, an important teaching, that very often, not always, but very often, the Bible also gives us a person who is the example for that, right? When the Bible has something important to teach us, very often there is one character in the Bible that seems to just be the ultimate example of that. For example, the Bible teaches us to be people of integrity, and then it gives us Joseph, the man of integrity. The Bible teaches us to be people who love God, and then it gives us David as the example of that. The Bible teaches us of the radical transformation that takes place when we are converted to faith in Christ. And then it gives us Paul as the example. And we could go on and on. But oftentimes when there is an important teaching in Scripture, there is also a character that is the embodiment of that teaching. And so the Bible teaches us to be encouragers. And the encourager is Barnabas. He is the Bible's example of one who encourages others. Because again, we know that we're supposed to do this And we know we're supposed to be encouragers to those around us. But we also, even though we know that, 
And even though the Bible tells us to speak encouraging words in many different places, I, I think there's probably three or four dozen places where I could show you this morning that the Bible tells us to speak encouraging things. Even though we know that, we still need an example for it. And we'll see why as we go through this. But we know that the Bible tells us that our words are to be words of encouragement, right? That the things that come out of our mouth, James 4.11, let no evil things come out of your mouth. Or, or uh, uh, you see the passage in your notes there from Colossians. Or the Proverbs. You know, I'm just, just now finishing up kind of an extended study that I've been doing in my personal devotion time on the Proverbs, and I am just blown away at how often the Proverbs talk to us about what comes out of our mouth. I, I didn't count it. Maybe 30 times or more, the Proverbs speak about what comes out of our mouth. And so the Bible teaches us that we are to be people that speak encouraging things to others. But let me suggest to you this morning that there is a difference between speaking encouraging words and being an encourager. The two are not the same thing. Being an encourager includes more than just speaking words of encouragement. And so if we take the Bible's teaching that shows us that we are to have those things come out of our mouth that are encouraging things, and we think that that is the sum total of what it means to be an encourager, then we've missed out on a lot of what the Bible calls us to be. The Bible calls us not just to speak encouraging things, but to be an encourager. And here's why the Bible gives us an example. This is what an encourager looks like, and this is what an encourager does. So we're going to see in the passage this morning four, at least four things about Barnabas that make him an encourager. We're not going to get to all four of those today. We'll have to finish that up next week. But four things, at least four things about Barnabas that make him an encourager. And only one of those things we'll see has anything to do with what comes out of his mouth. So as we look at this, um, and we think about what it means to be an encourager to others, let's think about the fact, okay, I, I think it's a given that all of us want to be encouragers, right? I don't think that there's a child of God who doesn't desire to be an encouragement to others. But tell me if this resonates with you, or, or just maybe nod your head if this resonates with you. You have had a friend or a loved one or someone you care about in your life that something has happened in their life and they become very distressed, very anxious, very discouraged. And you want very much to encourage them. And so you speak words of encouragement to them. You tell them... Um, Turn to the Lord. He will never leave you, never forsake you. Uh, turn to His Word. His Word has the answers for you. Pray to God. He will listen and He will answer. You say all those things that are all true, all accurate, and all appropriate. And yet you somehow sense that encouragement hasn't taken place. Does that resonate with you? Do you have you been there that you can speak all the words of encouragement that you want, and you still sense that encouragement has not taken place. That's why we have Barnabas, to show us how that we can put feet to our words of encouragement, to make our words of encouragement effective 
in the hearts of others. And so let's begin looking at these four things that we see about Barnabas. The first thing that we see about Barnabas is that Barnabas was glad. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Barnabas was easily gladdened when he saw the work of God in others. Encouragers, biblical encouragers, are easily gladdened when they see the grace of God or the work of God taking place in others. Now let's think about this for just a moment and let's think about what Barnabas saw when he got to Antioch. What do you think he found when he got to Antioch? Do you think that Barnabas found a church that was just a smaller version of what was going on in Jerusalem? Do you think he found a church that was made up of converts to Christ who came out of a monotheistic Jewish background in which they already understood that there is only one God and now that God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and we have this basis of morality that that Judaism has taught us and so we can apply all that morality to what Jesus now teaches us? Do you think that's what Barnabas found in Antioch? Or do you think he found a church made up of people who only days or weeks before had been converted to faith in Christ out of a background of complete paganism? That's what he found, wasn't it? People who just weeks before were worshiping Daphne and Apollos and Zeus and Jupiter and whoever else they wanted to worship. People who had no concept of the fact that we are called to live pure lives, lives separated from sin, lives that are holy. Even those who were converted to Christ from Judaism sort of had those basic understandings in place. They had to rework them to understand how all that works out with the freedom that they now have in Christ. But yet, they had that basis, that foundation. These Antioch Christians did not. And so I would suggest to you that Barnabas finds in Antioch something that was very troubling. He found people who knew Jesus, who were converted to Jesus, but were doing some very troubling, very strange things. They were probably in many ways looking more like the pagans that they used to be than the new Christians that they are, right? I was reading not too long ago about Madagascar. Madagascar is an island off the east coast of Africa. I think Disney made a movie about it. But their movie had nothing to do with this. In Madagascar, you know what they do? In Madagascar, they do something. They've done this for centuries and centuries and centuries. Nobody knows how long. But this is what they do. They, uh, when, they're, when people pass away in Madagascar, they don't bury them in the ground. They uh, wrap them, maybe put them in a box, and they put them in a cave that's easily accessible. And then on a regular basis, usually once a year, (laughs) you're nodding your head, they have a festival. And they go and dance with the dead. Their dead relatives. With corpses. That's just what they do. That's just, they just go and they get the boxes out and they lift them over their heads and they dance around and they're dancing with the spirits of their departed relatives. That's just what they do. It's just in their culture. Now, the gospel has come to Madagascar. There's a church of born-again Christians in Madagascar. And do you know what those Christians do when everybody else goes and pulls out the corpses and dances? They go right with them and do the same things. Now, imagine with me that we get together a mission team, some of us right here, and we go to Madagascar. 
We want to encourage the church there. We've heard there's a new church there. We want to help build them up, maybe teach them some, some uh, things about the Bible that we've learned, maybe do some VBS with them, maybe help them build a, a building to meet in or something. And we know nothing about this, nothing about what's going on there. And we show up there. And the Christians say, we're glad you're here. You're just in time. The festival is going to start tomorrow morning. We want you to come with us. And we go. How would we react? Would we be troubled by what we saw? Would we say, this is not right? Would, would you, on the mission team, would you come to me? Pastor, you're the leader here. You need to go tell these people, this is not right. They need to stop doing it. Christians just don't do that. And you'd be right. But would that discourage them or would that encourage them? And see, that's the point. The point is not, are they doing every single thing as we would do them or even as the Bible says? The point is not, are we saved because we've stopped dancing with corpses? The point is, are we saved because we've trusted in the completed work of Christ on the cross and we've placed our faith in Him? And although everything about our lives is not exactly as the Bible says it should be, are we glad to see the grace of God in their lives? You see, that's how people are encouraged. It's when others see the work of God in their life instead of seeing all the things that are wrong or yet to be worked out in their life. The Bible calls us as Christians to call sin what it is and to point out sin lovingly in brothers and sisters that, that we see. But that does not take precedence over the glad-heartedness that we are to feel over what God has already done, namely salvation in other people. And when we fail to recognize that and we fail to be glad, but instead the first thing we want to do is when we see another work of God, we immediately compare it to our work of God, and usually that's unfavorably. And when it doesn't measure up to our work of God, then the first thing that we want to do is, okay, so you need to change this, you need to stop this, you need to start doing that. Barnabas doesn't do that. Barnabas is glad. You think he saw some troubling stuff? You bet he saw some troubling stuff. But he was glad that God was working there and that Jesus Christ has now saved people in Antioch. He's got a lot of work to do in their life, but he'll do it. And so he's gladdened by seeing this. This is the first characteristic when we look at Barnabas, the first characteristic that we see of an encourager. If you want to encourage those around you, if you want your words of encouragement to have effect in people's lives, then speak those words of encouragement out of a heart that has been trained to purposely look for and find the grace of God in the lives of others, recognize it, point it out, and be glad for it. If you want your words of encouragement to fall on deaf ears, then you ignore what God's doing in people's lives, and you just focus on what needs to be done. But if you want your words of encouragement to have meaning and significance, then recognize, train yourself, recognize, call attention to, and be glad for the work that God has done and is continuing to do. That's the first thing we see about Barnabas. The second thing we see about Barnabas, verse 23, um, is that he does speak encouraging words. Verse 23, he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all, 
to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he does speak words of encouragement. And we're going to put most of this off for next week when we get down to the end of the passage. And we see that Saul and Barnabas stay there and teach them for a year. But what I want to do now is just maybe draw attention to the fact that Barnabas encourages them to persevere in their faith. He encourages perseverance. And this seems to be the habit of of Paul and Barnabas. In your notes here, I've got a couple of uh, passages to take a look at. Um, It just seems to be the habit of Paul and Barnabas to notice the work of, uh, uh, to, uh, I'm sorry, to encourage others to persevere. We see from Acts 13, verse 43, many devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Or Acts 14, verse 22, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So we see at least a couple more times that that's going to be what Paul and Barnabas do, is they encourage those to persevere, to continue in the grace and in the faith. So again, we're not going to say too much about that today. We'll leave most of that for next week. But I did want to draw your attention to that. Now the third thing that we see that is an encourager, that is an encouraging aspect of Barnabas, we see it in verse 24. Verse 24 says, For he was a good man. For he was a good man. What does Luke mean by that? He was a man of character. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of... uh, principle. He was an, a man of integrity. And the fact that Barnabas was a man of integrity was encouragement to the Christians in Antioch. Think about this. How many times do we see you know, the uh, big name pastor somewhere who's fallen into sin and the whole world knows about it because he ran off with his secretary, stole some money from the church or whatever. And and because this was such a big popular church, then that's just plastered all over the place everywhere, right? We see that. When you see that, are you encouraged or discouraged? You're discouraged, right? Lack of integrity in other Christians discourages us. On the flip side, when we see integrity in others, it encourages us. But when we see a lack of it, it discourages us. Think of it this way. What if someone comes to you and says to you, listen, I just want to encourage you, sister, to get into the Word. I know you've not been in the Word. I need you to get in the Word. And you know they're not. Does that encourage you to get into the Word? Or they say to you, listen, uh, you you really need to to be with us. You've kind of been out of church and you you really need to be among God's people. And you know they're not. That doesn't encourage you. That discourages you. When we see integrity in others, it encourages us. When we see a lack of integrity, it discourages us. So Barnabas comes to Antioch, and the Christians in Antioch see that he is a man of principle, a man of integrity, and that encourages them to be the same. Now the next thing that we see is that he is also, verse 24, we read here, he was a good man, a man of principle, a man of integrity, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. That is Luke's way, it's sort of his default way of describing every Christian in the book of Acts, right? Every time we read of a Christian, he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Not. No. Full of faith in the Holy Spirit is significant. Now, what does Luke mean here? Full of the Holy Spirit means that he, once again, speaks 
for Christ, speaks testimony for Christ. That's what the filling of the Spirit does in Acts. We'll talk about that next week as Barnabas and Paul teach them for a year. But he's full of faith. What does that mean? Full of faith. Well, it means he was full of faith in God, but not just God. He was full of faith in the Antioch Christians. He had faith in them. He believed in them. And that served to encourage them because he believed in them. Encouragers believe in those whom they are trying to encourage. Here's a picture of Carrie uh, Strug. Carrie Strug. You may remember Carrie Strug. She was obviously a member of the U.S. women's gymnastics team, the Olympic team, back in 96, so 17 years ago. So if you remember back then, the 96 Olympics, you might remember her story. She, being part of the women's team, was competing in the Olympics, and the U.S. team had accumulated enough points, however that works, they had accumulated enough points, that all Carrie Strug had to do was one vault, you know the vault where they run and jump on that little springboard and flip over, and they got to land. She had to do one vault and land it. And apparently, if, if you landed the vault, that was enough points to give the U.S. team the gold. So that's all she had to do. And she got two tries to do it. So she runs, does a vault, lands, and sprains her ankle badly. Now, I've had a badly sprained ankle, and I don't think that thing hurt any more than a broken ankle would hurt. So you know what a badly sprained ankle, you, you can't even stand on it. She couldn't even stand and so you remember the picture, she's laying there on the mat in tears. Tears because she's in pain, and tears because she knows what just happened. But then the story goes on, she does the vault, lands it, and later she would say that the only way she could do that was because she constantly heard her coach that you saw holding her there, on the side, repeatedly yelling, Carrie, I believe in you. Carrie, I believe in you. And that was what strengthened her to do such a difficult thing, right? So encouragers believe in those whom they are encouraging. This isn't in your notes. It just uh, kind of came to mind. 1 Corinthians 13. You know 1 Corinthians 13? It's the love chapter, right? The love chapter that has nothing to do with love between husband and wife, but love between brother and brother and sister and sister. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 says this, Love bears all things. Love believes all things. You ever thought of that? Love believes all things. What does that mean? That means that Christian love, by default, believes the best about you until you prove me wrong. Until you prove me wrong, Christian love believes the best about you. So Christian love can be easily taken advantage of. Very easily taken advantage of, right? Because Christian love will insist on believing the best about you until you prove me wrong. So encouragers believe in those whom they encourage. Now let's slow down for a minute. And somebody tell me what's wrong with everything I just said. Everything that's wrong with that is this. All of that is secular psychology bunk. And you are nodding your head because you've been trained by our culture to believe that. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to have faith in people. 
Nowhere does the Bible tell us to believe in people. And so what I just did, I did that on purpose to show you how easy it is to do that. I just took some secular psychology that you hear on Oprah Winfrey and I sprinkled it with a little Christianity. I even quoted a verse. And it sounded real Christian, didn't it? The only problem was is it wasn't. You can hear that sort of thing in many churches around this area, on Christian television. What they do is just take some secular psychology, sprinkle a little thin veneer of Christianity, quote a couple of verses over it, and there's some Christian teaching. No, it's not. And you won't hear that here. Now, 1 Corinthians 13.7 does mean what I said it meant. Christian love does, by default, see the best in others. I just misapplied it to this, pa- to this passage. It has nothing to do with what Barnabas is doing. Barnabas is full of faith in God. And in a sense, he's full of faith in the Antioch Christians, but not in them. He's full of faith in the God who indwells them. And there is a huge difference between having faith in people and having faith in the God who indwells people. We cannot have faith in humans. Because every single human on the planet, sooner or later, will let you down. And when that happens, if your faith was placed in them, then your faith goes right with it. Instead of having faith in humans... The Bible calls us to have faith in the God who saves and indwells those humans and He changes them. He makes them like Christ. And we have faith in the God who is in them. Barnabas believes in the Antioch Christians to the extent that God indwells them. And he believes in the God who has indwelt them and promised to make them like Christ. And so he can see these troubling things that are going on and know that they need to be corrected, know that they need to be fixed, but he can still be glad, and he can still have faith because he knows the God who now indwells them, and he knows that that God has promised to make them like Christ. This is the same kind of encouragement that we see throughout the the letters of Paul. This is always how Paul encourages people. Paul never encourages people by saying, I believe in you. He says, I believe in the God who has saved you and now dwells in you. Philippians 1.6, this is, I think, the primary passage, passage that we see this in. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that is encouragement for you, Philippians, because I know the God who saved you, and I know the God who lives in you, and I know what he has promised to do. Now, where do you think Paul learned to encourage people like that? From Barnabas. Because this is how Barnabas encourages those in Antioch. We are to be encouragers of others, not because we believe in them, but because we believe in the God who has saved them. You know, it is not particularly encouraging to me for you to say to me, I believe in you. I believe in you, Jason. I mean, it may feel good, but that doesn't encourage me. You know why that doesn't encourage me? For one thing, it tells me that you're foolish to believe in me. For another thing, it reminds me that you don't know me as well as I know me. Because I know me well enough to know just how likely I am to fail. Which makes the whole thing even worse because then once I do fail, not only have I failed, but I've also let you down as well. 
believing in people does not encourage them. Believing in the God who has saved them and promised to make them like Christ, that encourages people. You know, it's like cheerleaders. You ever notice cheerleaders are... I don't... If somebody here has been a cheerleader, I don't want to offend you, but cheerleaders are weird people. You know, they're strange. They're strange because... You ever watch these cheerleaders on the sidelines? It doesn't matter what the score... You wonder if they're even watching the game. Because it doesn't matter what the score is. Their team could be down 65 to nothing, and they are cheering like it's tied. In a way, we're to be like that. Only we're not cheering for people. We're cheering for God. Or let me, let me just be a little bit more theologically precise. We're not cheering for God so much as we're cheering that the people who are indwelt by God would increasingly submit and surrender to the God who indwells them. That's what we're to cheer for, regardless of the score, regardless of who's failed, regardless of how many steps backwards you've taken. You still cheer that the person would increasingly submit more and more to the God who indwells them and who has promised to change them. That is far more encouraging than telling somebody you believe in them. Encouragers like Barnabas place their faith in the God who has saved and promised to change them. And that faith, when it's displayed, serves to take your words of encouragement and put feet to them, put meaning to them, put an edge to them, so that they cut through the layer of discouragement right through to the heart. There's a story that's told about a young couple back in the pioneer days who moved out onto the frontier of Minnesota when Minnesota was a frontier. If you know anything about Minnesota, really cold in the winter, lots, lots of snow, and lots of lakes. And so here they are in Minnesota, living just this couple miles from anybody else. Middle of winter, snow comes down, it's deep and thick, and the wife gets sick. In fact, she gets so sick, she's going to die without some medicine. So the husband sets out to the nearest civilization to get some medicine for her in the middle of winter. And he's walking. He didn't have any horses or anything, so he's walking through the snow. And he comes to a lake. The lakes in Minnesota, some of them are just huge. This lake was too big to walk around, so he had to go across it. Only he didn't know if he could trust the ice or not. And so what does he start doing? He starts crawling across the ice, the low crawl, distributing his weight out as evenly as possible, because if he stands on two feet, then that's going to put more weight on a smaller place. So he's distributing his weight as he crawls across this lake. And as he's crawling across the lake, he starts to hear a rumble. And he starts to feel these vibrations. And he starts to panic. Is this the ice that's starting to crack? Well, the rumble gets louder, the vibrations get stronger, and he looks up, and it's not the ice cracking. It's a stagecoach coming. And this stagecoach comes right down onto the lake with a team of horses pulling it and pulls it right across the lake. The stage goes right by the guy. The guy's still laying on the ground in bewilderment. He looks up at the stage driver. The stage driver looks down at him like he's crazy, and he keeps on going. Now, what did the guy do after that? Say it. He gets up. If it can hold a stagecoach... And it can hold me walking. So he stands up and he runs. Gets the medicine. Comes back. Runs across the lake again. Gets the medicine to his wife. Just in time. She's saved. And as she recovers, 
She thanks him. You saved my life. He says, well, me and some others saved your life. Me and the doctor that gave me the medicine saved your life. And me and a stagecoach driver saved your life. Because I saw the confidence that he had in the ice that gave me confidence to stand up and run. Folks, Barnabas is that stagecoach driver. And as his life displays supreme confidence in the ice, or to complete the analogy, the God who indwells these Antioch Christians, then that encourages the Antioch Christians to stand up and run. They've been crawling, but it encourages them to stand up and run. Folks, we're called to be encouragers. The Bible tells us all over the place to speak encouraging words. But Barnabas is here to tell us this morning that your words just don't do it. They're necessary, they're appropriate, they're helpful. But words of encouragement spoken from people who don't have enough faith to stand up on the ice will fall on deaf ears. Words of encouragement spoken from someone whose life shows that they don't trust God enough to live the life that He's called them to live, those words will fall on deaf ears. Words that are spoken from someone who is so blind to the work of God in your life that they don't see it, recognize it, much less be glad about it, those words will fall on deaf ears. Let Barnabas be an encouragement to us that we encourage others, not just with our words, but with our faith and with our life.